So this is 40. And I have the most perfect and beautiful little boat one could want to be on in this storm. It is still a storm. God, and I just wish. Oh, I just wish we were all making it to the harbor right now. Welcome to Wild Talk. Welcome to Wild Talk. Welcome to Wild Talk. Let's head outside. On my 40th birthday this year, I could finally say it out loud. I'm not okay. My life before these empty days feels like it belongs to someone else. And the future is a faith so fragile, I can only bring myself to say its name in a whisper. Getting social engagement only through screens or faces half smothered by a mask has given me a kind of emotional nerve damage. So many of us are at the breaking point, but the hardest part is watching the toll this is taking on my kids. My son broke down the other day after one of life's small annoyances pushed him over the edge. He screamed from the depths of his eight-year-old belly and went running into the woods behind our home. When I caught up to him, weeping and collapsed on the ground, and asked him what was wrong, he looked me dead in the eye and said, I can't live like this. What is even the point of living if it has to be like this? I managed to scrape him and the remnants of my own heart up off the ground and get us both patched back up with some cocoa and a movie. But a few days later, on the eve of her 10th birthday, my daughter lost it as well. The screams that started over some incomplete chores lapsed into sobs of despair so deep, my child disappeared and a young woman took her place. No one needs me anymore, she cried, with a clarity that cut me to bone. And I get it. I do, I get it. I've got 40 years of memories to keep me warm and striving, but still, this smear of days so scorched by computer screens, so stunted in their potential and flavorless in their passing, feels like a walking death. In 2020, the CDC reported a 25% increase in kids as young as 5 to 11 years old showing up to emergency rooms suffering from mental health issues like depression and anxiety. The toll this crisis is having on all of us is so palpable, but often hard to talk about, because trauma literally robs us of our ability to make meaning together. That's part of the definition psychologists use to define traumatic events. When the world as we know it suddenly disappears, and we're left wondering who we are and what we're supposed to do now, that stress, that untethering can become traumatic. 
It can leave us feeling exhausted, foggy-headed, angry, and hopeless, especially if we don't find ways to make new kinds of meaning for ourselves. So, when yesterday is today as far as the eye can see, how do we give shape and meaning to the passing of time? How can I help myself and my kids see that was then and this is now in a way that acknowledges all we've been through and how awful it still is, but opens the door to a future that none of us can yet describe? These times are hard, like really hard, especially for a kid. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they expect us to do so much work. Yeah, and this is this may not be like a big portion of like somebody else's life because like they've already had a childhood, but it's it's a big part of our life because like all these experiences that we normally have have just been like poofed. I need to create a new ritual to help hold and acknowledge this backlog of grief. But I need it to be more than just wise words and deep breathing. I need a ritual with teeth. Big existential time-bending problems like this usually call for some wisdom that has stood the test of time. So I started thinking about Jewish rituals and symbols for marking time and acknowledging loss. It's an old joke that we Jews have so many holidays because we have so many reasons to cry. From multi-course meals that reenact our escape from slavery in Egypt to making triangle-shaped cookies mocking the hats of our enemies, all of our Jewish holiday traditions are loaded with layers of meaning. There's a Jewish New Year's tradition that I kept coming back to, of eating apples we dip in honey to make a wish for sweetness in the year to come. In the depths of this winter, that pithy explanation of sweet wishes suddenly seemed like a false front a pretty covering for something else within. First off, if this ritual is just about sweetness, do I really need to eat both apples and honey? Isn't that overkill? Why not some other fruit? Why not a feast of cakes and cookies? Second, we take the time to say two different blessings over the apples and honey separately even though we eat them together. Perfect. And then we say something over the honey. I know, I know. That seems like a small detail, but Jews do not take dipping foods casually. And when we do, we usually bless the whole thing at once. So two blessings? This was no accident. The Jewish holidays have always been a kind of tether for me and for the kids a well-worn pattern we can fall into that stitches us to family far away and to generations past. The closer I looked, the more signs I began to see of some secret compartment at the heart of this ritual, of dipping apples into honey. But what makes apples and honey such important symbols to reflect on as marks of a year that was and a way to look forward to the year to come? Ready? Mm Mm-hmm. Down to Daisy's honey and apples. You want to taste the honey and apple? Mm-hmm. Honey is like liquid summer. Cracking open a jar, my co-host Jay Erickson had given me for the bees of his own hives 
The kids and I were transported instantly back to his farm and the lazy day we spent swimming in the pond last July. Bring the dish closer to you so you don't drip. This okay. tastes like springtime flowers. Yeah, you can taste flowers in it. Mm-hmm. I don't know yeah, why. it does taste like it tastes like poppies. I think almost. Mm-hmm. I think Jay said it was echinacea. That was the name of the flowers. I should change the name to Eka Goodna because it's Hecka Good. Hecka Goodna. I see what you mean by springtime. Make me a little happier. I asked Jay what the bees were up to right now as the year drew to a close. In the fall, the, the hive kicks out all the males because they don't want, need them for the winter. They don't want them for the winter. They just sit around and eat all the honey. And, they're, they're not <laughs> and the queen probably has enough sperm to, sperm to get things going in the spring, and they'll be able to raise new males or drones. So, so, so get rid of all the dudes. And then, and then they form this bee ball where it's all the workers, and at the center of the bee ball is the queen. And they move, this whole entire ball moves through the hive um, over the course of the winter, consuming honey to keep warm and to keep alive that they've stored up over the summer. Um, so that's what they're doing right now. And the amazing thing is that the, the, at the center of that, I believe she's the queen is, it's like, it's like 80 degrees or 90 degrees or something. It's quite warm at the center of that ball. It might be eight degrees outside, but they're just burning honey and sort of generating warmth and uh, and clustering. And then the the workers on the outside kind of lock up, and and it's almost as if you know when when I was you know a lot of these protests and stuff and protests I've been a part of, um, you know that outer layer oftentimes people lock arms and there's this sort of group inside. And then when people get fatigued or injured, they sort of swap out. It's basically the same. Uh, deal they do in this bee ball where when they get too cold on the outside they they sort of tag out and girls from the inside go to the outside layer um, and they just move through the hive and hopefully depending on the weather and how much honey they have stored you know they make it through uh, to the spring the bee ball that's what I'm missing the vibration of the hive to keep me warm those others who lock arms with you and tap you out when you're exhausted but also, um, I, I just learned about um, hibernaculums. Leave it to Jay to also point out the creepy, weird version of this metaphor. Which are um, basically places in rock, usually, or little small caves where snakes gather in the winter. And they don't, they don't fully shut down or have it. They just, they just slow way, 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 way down. And there can be hibernaculums with garter snakes, which are, which are in our area, so they have thousands of them. So I have these image of like, uh, these little pockets around us that are hidden with thousands of snakes yeah. just woven together in a hibernaculum. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. This is Josh Viertel farmer, slow food activist, and co-founder of the Harlem Valley Homestead, who was walking with Jay as he told the story of these snake snuggle parties. Yeah, I mean, that's such a... It's beautiful and sort of almost terrifying. But, like, I, I think about my own gut response now to, like, closeness in the context of a pandemic. Mm. And, and Those, the, the snakes the, are not socially distancing. Yeah, they're not socially distancing, <laughs> right? But just the thought of being being that close in community has so much um, draw for me, but then also there's the, the sort of trauma and the feeling of that's not safe to do anymore. And I feel like mm. I'm, I'm really looking forward to sort of healing that, healing that wound collectively so it can feel right to be close that way. 
Right. Yeah. I know exactly what Josh means. To be terrified of this thing we crave the most. We don't know how we're supposed to interact with each other anymore. Even in the small moments of sweetness we find. Like the day the election was finally called. All of Brooklyn seemed to be dancing in the street. My husband and I talked that evening about how great that brief moment of connection felt, but how awkward it was for us to figure out how best to join in. Yeah. I loved what that uh, that woman said to us. It was just kind of like having a dance party on the corner, but she said congratulations. I felt like that was the best thing because I didn't know what to say. We just made, you know, we all make awkward eye contact now over our masks, and we can't even get like a decent facial recognition of like, are you are you excited? Like we just have such a, a, a limited. Um, a limited facial recognition vocabulary that we're having, but yeah. Our, yeah, our just our eyes met. And when she said congratulations, I just felt so, I'm like, yes, that is the thing. That is the thing we need That's to be saying, saying each other. That is what we're saying to each other right now. Congratulations. Congratulations. My husband and I marked the occasion of that evening by opening a bottle of sparkling hard cider made from the apples of a hundred year old orchard. We're good. We're good. We're good. We're live. Pop it. Okay. All right. We marked this moment with that same tool of ritual, a drink. Old fruit and old troubles both transformed through the alchemy of fermentation. As two native Californians who are now well over a decade into raising our family in the Big Apple, our relationship to the city felt deeper now. Having gone through the plague in New York, Mm -hmm. and that's not to say that it's, you know, every, every place has gone through its own plague in its own way, but like as an epicenter, as a place that was hit so hard, as a place that is so physically physically in tension with the requirements of life under COVID. It's like, so hard to socially isolate in yeah, New it's, York. It's, it's the like, hive. Yeah. It's the hive. It yeah. literally is like where we all congregate, where we yeah. literally like swirl to keep each other warm and sane, right? Yeah. Like... So the honey we dip is also a reminder of the hive, not just the immediate sweetness of our labor. It's the warmth in the work we do together and the structures we've built to keep us all safe. But I think we also need some snake energy in this ritual, something to acknowledge how terrifying closeness has become and how we ache for it still. A way to push past that paralysis and into a hope for, well, a hope for what? As we sipped our century cider that night in November, I couldn't help but think of the generations of work it took to make the drink that fizzed in our glasses, and what the hell kind of legacy we would be building for our kids that could be equal parts apology and fresh start at something better. I'm Field Maloney. Uh, I'm a proprietor of West County Cider, and we make hard cider. We're the uh, uh, longest-running cider house in the con- uh, country. We started in 1984. Field Maloney made the cider my husband and I drank that evening. He knows a thing or two about legacy and about apples. Uh, I was in fifth grade. My mother and father and I have been uh, making and selling hard cider from local apples uh, in Massachusetts, uh, in Coleraine, Massachusetts, and now in in Coleraine and Shelburne, Massachusetts, uh, ever since. 
Um, I mean, I think my focus in the last five years, uh, cider in terms of cider making, has partly been to try to find these old apple orchards that a lot of the growers either either the growers have gone out of business and they, the orchards have been sold and they're either abandoned or plowed over or the growers are still in business and they're growing apples but they're like that orchard is too old it's 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 fruit you know it's not yielding high enough and I'm like wait no that fruit is fantastic that fruit makes the best cider uh, can I can I work with this orchard don't give up on this orchard yet it's got so much to offer field is someone who can see the potential in things others have given up on and each apple is itself a kind of potential incarnate not just because the sweet flesh of the apple protects the seeds inside the thing about apples is that they reproduce kind of like humans the next generation is never an exact copy of the parent. It's a mix of genes that result in all sorts of variations on the theme. So you can't just keep a bunch of apple seeds around from, say, a Granny Smith apple and then plant them, expecting to get bright green skins and deliciously tart fruit. No, you actually have to cut a branch off a Granny Smith tree and then graft that branch onto another apple tree trunk to get more Granny Smiths. That clipping you take is called budwood, and the tree you Frankenstein that branch to is called the rootstock. The rootstocks are apple trees bred to be good hosts for these pieces of budwood, sturdy and reliable, a good foundation for someone else's future. And so actually there are some old farmers around here who just in their sort of farmerly pastimes uh, Chip Hager in Colerain actually does it, where he's got an apple tree where he's grafted about eight different varieties of apples onto that apple tree. Because, because you can just take branches from one budwood from one variety and graft it onto this apple tree. And then he's taken it from another variety and grafted it on. So he has all these branches coming out with different apple varieties. So if you were like, what kind of apple tree is that? Well, you'd have to say, well, it's a Cortland, but it's also a Mac, but it's also a Gala, but it's also a Baldwin, but it's also a Cortland, you know? So uh, It takes a tradition of farmers passing down clippings from generation to generation to get any particular kind of apple to grow and be around for eating or baking or making cider. In the 1800s, there was a vibrant apple growing and cider making culture all over this country. But that wealth of apple knowledge, written down in hundreds of books and pamphlets by farmers across the country, was almost impossible for people like the Maloney's to use over a century later. When my father was getting into cider making, uh, in the early years of West County Cider, so, so in, the, uh, in the 80s, when we started making hard cider commercially, there, most of the books that we looked to... Uh, you know, there was a vibrant hard cider making culture in the 1800s. And uh, there were lots of ideas about this apple makes a great, this apple variety makes a great hard cider, or that apple variety makes a great hard cider. And uh, so my father got these books, these used books from the 1800s. There were a few uh, botanists and horticulturalists. Liberty Hyde Bailey was one of the great names that shouldn't go entirely forgotten. Uh, who uh, had these catalogs of, of all these different apple varieties and, oh, this makes an incredible cider. 
Um, the problem was you couldn't find that fruit because it only existed in textbooks. The apple variety had been almost entirely, had vanished almost entirely. Um, you know, it's sort of a variety goes extinct. That can happen uh, for apple varieties, definitely. But a lot of them had been held, at, preserved at this, at the, the Geneva orchard. You know, the, 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 it's, a, it's a joint collaboration between the federal government and Cornell University, which has always been a big agricultural school. Uh, they have an orchard, it's called USDA Germoplasm uh, Repository. That's the technical term for it. But it's uh, the largest variety of apple uh, varieties in the Northern Hemisphere. So it's basically a library. A, a, you know, it's like the, the you know, famous Alexandria Library of Egypt of apple varieties, uh, or the Library of Congress of apple varieties. This living library grew because people were really into making all kinds of new apple types. Apples for eating, apples for pressing, applesauce, you name it. But unlike experiments that can be cataloged for future generations in a book, or seeds that can be gathered and slipped carefully into marked envelopes until someone wants to plant them, each attempt to make an apple that was bigger or sweeter or redder or whatever is preserved only in a tree. A tree that must be watered and tended and grafted onto new rootstock if the original starts to die. A lot of work goes into preserving each and every variety of apple that still exists today. So that orchard um, has a tremendous amount of apple varieties. And my father knew a guy who worked at that orchard and said, hey, can I uh, walk through this orchard um, this spring and gather budwood uh, so I can plant out my orchard as a test orchard to see different uh, what, what of these fabled varieties make great cider. And we also took, took cuttings from this or, uh, apple variety called the Redfield, which um, at that point in the late 80s, they were just still keeping in the Geneva Orchard because it was such a freak. It's a cross between the Niedwitzkiana, which is a red flesh Siberian crab apple that has a red flesh. In other words, it makes a rosé juice. It's a cross between that and the Wolf River, which is an apple out of the Midwest that it's known for its big, big ripe fruit and its sweetness. So it was sort of a classic, you know, American apple. And uh, so this is a cross of that that Geneva developed in the 1930s, uh, the, 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 the Cornell Geneva guys, uh, the Federal Agricultural Research Station bred because they were looking for a way to make applesauce red. Hmm. And um, so they bred this apple, which uh, has a bright red flesh, but has big fruit, not small crabapple fruit. Uh, and as they were walking through this orchard, the guy was like, yeah, that makes this incredible red-fleshed apple. You know, we've never found anything to do with it. Because what happened is they... They bred it because they were looking for a way to make applesauce red, but by the late 30s, food science technology had gotten sort of so uh, modernized that they developed food colorings to make applesauce red, so they no longer needed a red-fleshed apple. And so the apple was forgotten about and left in an obscure corner of the Geneva Orchard uh, basically for, 75, you know, for 50 years. And then my father's walking through the orchard in the 80s and they're like, oh, this has this really cool red flesh. And he's like, well, I'd love to make a rosé cider, so why don't I try growing a few of those? And then, um, 
So we planted some of those in our test orchard in Colerain, Massachusetts, which is where we are. We're, we're about five miles away from right now as we sit. And uh, those Redfield fruit made this sort of striking pink hue juice that made a rosé cider. And uh, we were like, man, that is... And not only did it have this vibrant hot pink color, but it had this incredible sort of red fruit, like raspberry, strawberry on the I palate. That's my favorite. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's sort of one of the most, one of the ciders that most, West County is most uh, known for and famed for at this point. So it's been planted across the country now by cider makers as cider making has taken off. And, um, I would say that my father really, I don't think it would be um, speaking too strongly to say that he really brought this apple out of obscurity. There's an old Greek proverb that says, a society becomes great when old men plant trees whose shade they'll never sit in. When people work on something they will never directly benefit from. When they leave a gift for future generations, we begin to live longer than our own lifetimes. Our sense of time becomes more spacious when our lives start to have meaning on an intergenerational scale. Think of all the things that are holding you up right now, maybe even literally. Every chair or bed, every chain of farmers and grocers linked by roads and bridges, every series of digital handshakes that allow you to give bits of ones and zeros to all the people in that chain in exchange for this sack of apples or bottle of cider. The billions of microorganisms that performed the alchemy of fruit into boozy bubbles. Apples are a pretty perfect symbol of a gift from unseen hands. A gift we enjoy today, but requires work to pay it forward to people who may never know our names. That's the funny thing about legacy. It's kind of like trying to be cool. If that's your primary goal, you can never really achieve it. It's not something you can plan out ahead of time. It's something that emerges and takes shape as you do the work itself. And sometimes you don't get a choice in how that work's going to go, for yourself or for the people you love. When Field's father died unexpectedly, he knew he had some big shoes to fill if he chose to slip them on. And now, and right before he died, the Redfield Cider was starting to be really recognized. It was funny. Uh, I mean, I think he was sort of tickled pink and delighted. He had gotten an email from the, the Harvard Club. And he wasn't a Harvard grad, but it was like, they were like, we want to do a talk on cider making. Can you come to New York City? And uh, he died that, and he sent me an email saying, ah, look at Apple. People are getting into it. Look at even, even the... The Harvard Club wants to do a talk on cider making. And so, uh, so he died. So I had to go down and do that talk. But it felt like, you know, in some very vivid way, I was continuing his. And that winter, I remember, that was the winter he died. I, could, I went out into the orchard because I had been working in the wine trade in Napa in, in vineyards. And I went back home and went back to the orchard and he, he had died, but his footprints, it hadn't snowed. So his footprints were still in the orchard because he had started pruning. Wow. And uh, 
So that, there was something very intense about that. And I guess what I was saying about Redfields is, like right as he died, he was starting to see that people were asking him for cuttings of Redfields. And among the world of cider makers, it's still fairly collegial. And, but if another cider grower says, hey, I want to plant, can you give me some cyanwood or budwood? You don't charge them. You give them some cuttings and you mail it to them. And so um, he was starting to mail cuttings of uh, Redfields to cider growers in you know, Colorado and Virginia. And now, you know, Redfields are being grown by commercial nurseries at much larger scale. And so the Redfield is growing across the country. And I think it would have uh, delighted my father because he definitely played a key role in the funny chain of happenstance uh, that, you know, that just like the funny ro role that the plant breeder back in the 30s, who knows his name, who like said, I'm going to finally make this applesauce that's going to be um, plant this and this is going to make a red fruit for make applesauce mm -hmm. and then that the, and then of course the applesauce was you know they didn't need it anymore because they were using food coloring for their applesauce but they didn't they didn't rip up and throw away that that, that the few plantings of that tree they were like this might be used someday and then you know 50 years later a man in the 80s is walking through the orchard and gathering budwood and gathers some from that tree because it sounds really cool and then he plants it and then he passes away but it's being propagated again and now people are planting it across the country so it's the the circle the circle <laughs> during this pandemic? What's helping you guys get through this? Well, probably, you know, still being able to see friends every once in a while, being able to go outside. The things that is getting me through is remembering that there's still a world out there that like we may be all shut down, but there there's still people behind the screen, right? And remembering that there's still a world out there that I can access that I'm not going to lose all hope and collapse because it's not as open as I want it to be to push through in order to see people again. And that's really what kind of drives me every day and to like take one step at a time and knowing that me learning and learning how to make the future better and staying inside and follow, following like safety precautions of wearing a mask and staying socially distant is going to help us get better and knowing that my actions are going to help people is really good. Here's the ritual I've landed on. Fair warning, this one's got teeth. Light some candles and place them where you'll notice their light and the shadows they cast. Like the snakes, the look we're going for is warm but slightly creepy. Step one, surrender. Wave the white flag and drop all your weapons. Raise your hands slowly and place them one over the other on top of your heart. You are now to become undone. Howl from the most ancient part of your bones and fall into whatever good solid thing is nearest to hold you. Lay the entire harvest of your grief out before you and name each piece. Step two, take stock. Find some pictures 
or play some music or gather mementos about the time before the pandemic. And then grab some things that remind you of this past year. Some recording of the life that you've lived that you can stare at like a receipt. Proof of these strange days and their kinder siblings. Put these things where you can see them. Next, grab something to drink and a bite of something special. Wine, cider, apples, and honey if you have them. Place these gifts of now next to the receipts of back then so they can all snuggle. Step three, give thanks. Put some part of yourself flat against the floor and think for a moment about every hand that went into building the surface holding you up in this moment. Think about the people who hammered the wooden boards or welded the frame of the apartment building, the care they took in cutting the material to the right length, lining them up true, the dust that was swept away, the doors that opened to let you in. Think about the architect who planned and the person who made sure the construction would hold up over time. Send out a few clear breaths of gratitude for the work of invisible hands, literally holding you up in this moment, who never expected anything from you in return. Step four, leave a mark. Then pick a person you miss and give them a call. Record a video or audio message if you can't get through. But take a breath and be brave, even if you're faking it at first. Tell them about the broken parts, about the things you miss and the things you nearly forgot. Tell them about the gift of food and drink you made for yourself this evening and how it feels to sit in front of the fire. Tell them about the deepest warm that you can find and the spookiest shadow. Go slow. Remember to breathe a lot. Puff a little more oxygen into the flickering embers at your belly with each thought. Then tell them about the apples, about the borrowed roots that hold them fast, Tell them about the tracks you're leaving in the snow. Tell them so that they know you're here, humming alongside of them in the dark. thoughts on apples and honey before I wrap here? Well, they're delicious. Yeah. Appreciate the sweetness and the sourness of the yes. new year. Mm-hmm. And that's all. Anything else from you, Gitters? Um, and eat your vegetables, kids. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Wild Talk Podcast. Find out more and subscribe at wildtalkpodcast.com. See you out there.